Our text this morning comes from Isaiah's prophecy, chapter 1, and verse 9. And there in that passage, Isaiah says, Except the Lord of hosts had left unto us a very small remnant. We should have been as Sodom, and we should have been like unto Gomorrah. He talks there about leaving a very small remnant. That doctrine, the doctrine of the remnant, is very important. It is central to the faith of this prophet of God. And when you think about it, that word remnant is one that we are very familiar with. I remember as a boy, it's been a year or two, but I remember, sitting by my grandmother as she sat at her old Singer sewing machine. It was electric, it had a knee feed on it. But I would watch her make clothes on that old Singer sewing machine. And I remember a big box of fabric she had near the machine that she called her remnant box. And that's where she kept the leftovers, the fabric she didn't use. And those bits of cloth were often used to make a quilt, maybe a rag rug or maybe a potholder. Both of my boys have Dutch doll quilts that their great-great-grandmother made from remnants of cloth, a remnant. Thanksgiving's coming up. Every year at Thanksgiving we have the turkey. The obligatory Thanksgiving turkey. And that's when we all are familiar with what a remnant is. Because the remnant of that Thanksgiving turkey torments us for weeks. I remember one year my mother said, we're not going to waste the turkey this year. We had... Sliced turkey Thanksgiving Day. A couple of days later, we had turkey croquettes. A couple of days later, we had turkey salad. And then there was turkey hash. And then one night, we sat down at the table and there was turkey stew. My daddy looked at it. He got up, went to the pantry, got a can of Vienna sausage. Came back to the table, opened his Vienna sausage, and I said, is there another can in there? He said, nope. Would you share that one? Do you have, if you knew my mother, you would only know the level of courage it took for him to go to the pantry and get that can of Vienna sausage. Now, we do things different at our house. We take that Thanksgiving turkey, and if we roast a whole turkey, we take it. And nobody eats at our house eats anything but the white meat. But we take the drumsticks and the thighs and all that dark meat, and we painstakingly spend an hour, hour and a half, making sure it's all off the bone, and we carefully store it in a Tupperware container. Because you don't waste it. No, sir, you don't throw out good turkey. You put it in that Tupperware container and you store it in the refrigerator till it ruins, and then you throw it out. A remnant. That's what Isaiah is talking about here. 
he says, a remnant. A small part that's left over after most of something has been used or destroyed. Isaiah makes a lot about this remnant. And the concept is, however, not entirely original with him. The prophet Amos used the same word. But the prophet Amos, his remnant is something dead rather than a living something. He compares those who escape after the destruction of Samaria to the fragments of a lamb taken from the jaws of the lion. Nothing is left of the slaughtered lamb but maybe a leg or a part of an ear. But the remnant that Isaiah speaks of is something that is very vital. It's like a shoot that springs up from the stump of a tree that's been cut down. It's not as large as the original tree, but it's a living something and it's a growing something. And that is the remnant of Isaiah. To be accurate, Isaiah's faith in this remnant is so strong that it is almost an obsession. And he mentions it over and over and over again. And he's actually so preoccupied with this remnant that he actually names his son a remnant shall be left. That's what his son's name is. And he mentions it over and over and over again. Isaiah gave his son that name to help him share his faith. To help him fortify his soul. So every time Isaiah did something with his son, he was reminded a remnant shall be left. This conviction was filled with sunshine. But beloved, it was also filled with shadows. If a few were going to be left, if a remnant was going to be left, then that meant that many were going to go into exile. And the prophet of God is profoundly convinced of this fact. Now, I like to think that by nature, Isaiah was a glass half full kind of guy. That by nature, Isaiah was an optimist. Because in spite of the adversity that confronted him in his day and time for, for the people of God, Isaiah was a prophet of God that was filled with hope. And he faced the future with that hope. This conviction came from what he knew about his people and also what he knew about God. In spite of what those people said, and in spite of their professed loyalty, Isaiah's people were unfaithful to God. He talks about them. They were a people of unclean lips. They drew near to God with their lips, but their hearts were far from God. They were a people filled with pride. A people who had fixed their faith upon themselves. A people whose faith was in their own schemes instead of having faith in the living God. But the God they claimed to worship, the God that Isaiah knew, was a God who was infinite in holiness, a God who was perfect in holiness. And being perfect in holiness 
and being perfect in goodness. He was a God who was constantly at war with evil. He was a fiery crusader against everything that is wrong. And since his own people were wrong, God was in the very nature of things the antagonist of his own people. In spite of all of his gracious promises, in spite of all his assurances that all nations were to be blessed through their race, God was bent on their destruction. And because we know what we know about Jesus, we can understand the antagonism of God against evil. Sometimes we speak of Jesus and we often hear Him referred to as the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And in our day and time, people like to, to paint a picture of this, as, as I like to call it, this milk toast. Jesus, meek and mild. And He was. He was gentle. He was the meekest of all men. But, that does not mean that Jesus went about smiling with indiscriminate approval on those who were good and those who were evil. There were those that Jesus approved of. And those that Jesus approved of, we hear Him speak words of commendation. There were others Jesus disapproved of. And those that Jesus disapproved of, to them we hear Him speak words of condemnation. There were some people of His day that Jesus actually could find no words to describe them that were too bitter. He actually described some people in his day and time as a generation of snakes. He even wondered in indignation how that generation of snakes was going to escape the damnation of hell. And Jesus never held out the slightest hope of anything but utter loss. For those who persisted in sin. And as optimistic as he was, God's prophet Isaiah could not resist the heartbreaking conclusion that his nation was doomed. It was a conclusion brought about because of what Isaiah knew about the nature of God. He was sure that not only would the soul that sinneth die, but the nation as well. Isaiah was certain that in the very nature of things, sin destroys the sinner. And not only does sin destroy the sinner, it destroys itself. Isaiah tells us, just as he tells his own people, that the nation that travels from God is a nation that surely travels toward ruination. But he was also certain that a remnant was going to be preserved. Isaiah was certain that the great majority of his people were headed for exile. But he was also sure that a remnant, a hopeful handful, a chosen few, 
would be preserved. And that was based on his conviction that there were still those there. There there were still those of Israel who were loyal to God. And that supreme assurance of the survival of a chosen few was something born because of Isaiah's faith in God. And why? Why, you ask? Why, we want to know, was this prophet so sure that the majority were going to be destroyed? Because they had turned from God. And since they had turned from God, in the very nature of things, God had to fight against them. You see, God is perfect in His goodness. And that perfect goodness of God makes the antagonism of God against evil a necessity. And it makes God's friendship with goodness also a necessity. Isaiah had this concept that God's going to preserve a remnant. But that wasn't a concept it was always easy for the prophet of God to hold on to. More than one time, that, that, that concept, that conviction, it was put to the test. And it probably reached its climax during the reign of Hezekiah. At that time, There were two great world powers. Assyria in the north, Egypt in the south. And between Assyria and Egypt were smaller nations such as Judah. And these smaller nations, they took refuge and shelter under the wings of first one and then the other of these Assyria or Egypt. During an hour of crisis, Ahaz, against the advice of Isaiah, had called on Assyria for help. And the resulting consequence was that Judah became a vassal of Assyria. But now Hezekiah joins Egypt and all the other nations, and Egypt along with the other nations that Hezekiah is joined with are going to try to throw off the yoke of Assyrian rule. And the results were less than satisfactory. They were actually disastrous. Because the Assyrian army defeated Egypt and all of Egypt's weaker allies. So now Judah is at the mercy of the enemy Assyria all the cities have been taken captive except Jerusalem and the conqueror Assyria is only 35 miles from the defenseless city of Jerusalem and the situation is hopeless and it's so hopeless that Hezekiah sends a delegation to Assyria to ask for terms the conqueror demands all the wealth of ivory silver and gold in the palace and in the temple And then those were given. But the conquering Assyrians are still not satisfied. So Hezekiah sends another delegation. And this delegation returns in tears. Because the conqueror Assyria has demanded the complete surrender of the city. 
Now, if you remember your Old Testament history, that's when an Assyrian military officer comes to taunt the people of God because of their weakness. He says, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. Because he knew there weren't that many men in the city that were fit to fight. So then he offers them a bribe. He says, surrender and you'll be taken to another land like your own. And then finally the last straw comes. A letter from the conquering king himself. Warning Hezekiah of the futility of his refusal to surrender. So as people often do in hours of despair when they think, oh, well, I have nowhere else to turn, Hezekiah appeals to the prophet of God. The result was Isaiah's faith that a remnant should be left stood out just as unshaken in this terrific tempest as it had in calmer days. He told Hezekiah, he said, don't be afraid. He said God would treat this conqueror as one might treat a horse or an ox. Isaiah 37 verse 29 reads, Therefore will I put my hook in thy nose, my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back by the way which thou camest. Like the words of the song that bring comfort to us so many times, Be not dismayed, whate'er betide God. We'll take care of you. And yet to Hezekiah, those words probably sounded so futile. To Hezekiah, those words probably sounded so absurd. There are nearly 200,000 Assyrian soldiers ready to attack Israel. How is there any way we're going to escape? But the attack that seemed so certain, it never happened. Some pestilence... We don't even know what it was. But some pestilence decimated the army of Assyria. One morning of that 200,000 assembled army of Assyria, one morning there were 185,000 Assyrian corpses. The stragglers that were left were just happy to make their escape from a land of death. So while the nation was largely destroyed it was not utterly destroyed a remnant was left a vibrant magnificent robust remnant and folks what happened here is not altogether unique Perhaps one of the miracles of all the centuries of time has been the indestructibility of goodness. However trying the situation, however triumphant evil seems to be, there have always been some good men and women. In the old Genesis story, it seems like the entire human family, all of the human race is rushing toward the ruin of the flood. But there were a few who continued to live because they were fit to live. A man by the name of Noah found grace in the sight of the Lord. Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives 
were spared from the flood waters that destroyed everything else. Write this down. It's on the final exam. God always preserves for Himself a chosen few. And folks, that is a faith that you and I must hold on to tenaciously. Because we are witnessing in our own day and time a nominally Christian nation where people are trying to remove every vestige of God from our society. The secular progressives and anti-Christian groups in this great land are running rampant. And we're told, well, we have to be tolerant. We have to be tolerant of those who hold views that are different from our beliefs. We don't want to force Christianity on anyone. We might trigger someone. They might need a therapy dog and a coloring book and a safe space. And at the same time, those who are preaching tolerance from the rooftops are the least tolerant people among us. For us to pray in public, to pray at public functions, to speak our mind on social issues such as abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism, same-sex marriage, and all these other evils of our day and time. Oh, we can't speak out against that. We're forcing our belief system on someone else. And yet these same radical groups have no compunction whatsoever about forcing their non-belief system on us. And over the years, they have been and they are being assisted by an overzealous judiciary and an anemic legislature. When I get home today, I probably will be told, you can't say things like that. But I'm about to say it. To be quite blunt, I am fed up to my eyeballs with godless heathens and two-bit politicians trying to tell the people of God how we can and cannot express our faith in the God of heaven. This remnant that Isaiah talked about was the hope of the world. Isaiah was sure that God was going to leave a remnant and that that remnant was going to be the hope of the world. The prophet was not a pessimist. And in spite of his clear view of impending disaster, he was an unconquerable optimist. And because he was sure of God, he was sure of the final triumph of righteousness. He saw a time when swords would be beaten into plowshares and spears to pruning hooks. He knew this was going to come to pass not at the hands of many, but of the few. And the confidence in the few 
rather than the many, has been vindicated over and over again on the pages of history. To be sure, all of our progress originated with the few and not with the many. There was a time when belief that the earth was round was held by very few. The majority were convinced the earth was flat. The majority was wrong. There was a time when there was only a handful of people that thought it was possible for man to fly. The majority was wrong. Taking a rocket to the moon, that was the stuff that fantasy was made of. It happened. How many of you remember the old Dick Tracy cartoons in the newspaper, in the Sunday funny papers, you know? And you remember in the 60s when Dick Tracy would communicate with people with his two-way wrist radio? Remember that? And we all laughed. <laughs> That's not ever going to happen. And yet I watched my daughter-in-law and her mother talk to people on their, on their watch. And I'm thinking, huh? Because they've got some of the, what do they call them, a smart watch? Or a, I don't know what it's called. I know that she has a program on her watch that she punches a button so her phone will beep and she can find her phone when she loses it, too. But back when we used to read the Dick Tracy cartoons, oh, people are never going to really do that, but that's a neat idea, and it's happening. The majority of people thought it never happened. I was one of them. Well, we were wrong. The American colonies won their freedom not by mass movement, but through an intelligent, militant minority. There were as many Tories in the colonies as there were revolutionists. And there were also an equal number of neutrals and unconcerned people who sided with whichever group happened to be winning at the time. It was a minority that brought about this great nation. This minority reaches its climax of importance in the realm of religion. If you were to ask, the majority of American people today would say, Oh yes, I believe in God. But before we clap our hands and shout and rejoice too much over that, let's ask what that faith has actually done for them. What effect does it actually have on their personal lives? Is it actually making them the kind of men and women that actually can walk with God? Is it actually making them the kind of people that God can bring to a better day? What's the greatest need of our day and our time? We need more Christians. But we need even more a better type of Christian. We need Christians who've taken the teachings of Jesus to heart. We need Christians who exemplify Jesus in their daily lives. We need Christians who love their neighbor the way they love themselves. We need Christians that defend each other and don't carp and criticize one another. We need Christians who look for the good in others and don't spend their time fault-finding. 
two grains of corn that have vitality are worth far more toward the raising of a crop than a million tons of corn that when it's planted won't come up. One shaker of salt that's kept its savor is worth far more than a whole shipload that's become insipid and worthless. It's vitality that counts. What does Isaiah and his faith, what does this faith of Isaiah in this remnant say to us this morning, right here in Center, Texas in 2023? It should save us from putting our confidence in mere numbers. Bigness is not enough. It ought to save me. This idea of the remnant ought to save me from despising the days of small things. It should make me more determined to be a part of the saving minority that's the hope of the world. Whatever others may do, I can be part of the remedy, not part of the disease. However many others might throw away their chance, I can offer my life as a roadway along which the God of heaven can walk for the bringing in of a better day. Now the question before the house this morning is, is Jesus the Lord and Master of your life? Are you part of that remnant? If Jesus is not Lord and Master of all of your life today, He is not Lord and Master at all in your life today. Do you need to make changes? Can we help you make those changes? You have the opportunity to let us do that as we stand and while we sing.